This podcast is hosted by R Double P. The following episode contains coarse language, violent themes, sexual references, and the really creepy stuff. If you're underage, turn off your device. fantastic intro so just so you know we're super nervous we're very nervous we've been so, spying on everyone from that window up there you didn't even know yeah <laughs> heard everything you've said thank you so much for emily um for for letting us host this as well from barn cats project because um this is who we are raising money for tonight i have three barn cats at my house that have been foster fails they're the loves of my life <laughs> and uh, if you would like to put your name down for one of our auction prizes, please do so in the break. We would be most appreciative. And anyone who's a smoker, use the little garden door. Um, I'll join you in the break. <laughs> By the way, I'm dressed as John Wayne Gacy, in case you didn't get the reference. Gemma, and this I'm is just Victoria Gemma's. I'm Victoria Nesta. <laughs> there you go. Gemma's dressed as me. <laughs> Shall we just pretend we're in the studio and just get on yeah. with it? Shall we do facts from the freezer? Facts from the freezer. Freezer, freezer. <laughs> Does anyone listen to the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> Who are these people? Can we get a raise of hands who listens to our podcast? Five of you. Yay! Can we get a raise of hands of people who have been on our podcast? (laughs) The five of you. Great. (laughs) So in case this is a first for you, we have a true crime podcast based on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and we, in, we, in, uh, we invest in guests. We invite guests often. And invest. And we, inv- we give them free plants. It's kind of like a come and support the podcast. So we really appreciate all the money that you've spent tonight. Um, except for the tickets that I've bought for a, a few people. <laughs> no, it's all good. Is going to the Barn Cats Project, like we've already said. So thank you. You are helping little kitty cats. We've got a slideshow. Um, we've got some games there. There's the prize pool. You've got <laughs> cat statues. <laughs> so it's worth it. If you want real prizes, you've got to pay for them. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I love them. Shall we fast? <laughs> All right. 
So this fact is to do with that belief that our life flashes before our eyes when we die. And Marilyn Moktel told me this um, when I, I, I was having Japanese food with her on Monday. And so in February 2022, doctors were taking an EEG brain scan of an 87-year-old man who was suffering from epilepsy. He had a heart attack unexpectedly and died during the procedure. And he had one of those do not resuscitate statuses. So the doctors kept the EEG machine running and they were able to watch his brain activity as he died. And for about 30 seconds before and after the man's heart stopped, the scans showed increased activity in parts of the brain associated with memory, which suggests the, brain, the, the man's brain may have been replaying memories from his life. Ooh. <laughs> that bloody fascinated me. <laughs> so let's make memories go. <laughs> Imagine dying and thinking of tonight. See, seeing me. <laughs> God. Okay, who, who here is a horror fan? Oh, beautiful. Now, we all know Australia makes some of the best horror movies, in my opinion. Mm. The gore is just... Oh, chef's kiss. So, um, Wolf Creek is one of my favourites. Yeah, Love some Wolf know. Creek. Um, and here's a fact, my fact from the freezer that I googled 10 minutes before the show. Are we all familiar with Ivan Milat? Yeah, boo, but interesting, very interesting. So, the sign at the entrance of the old mining company site where the killer takes his victims is actually the name of the backpacker murderer Ivan Milat spelled backwards, Navithalim Mining Company Co. Did you guys know that? Yes, great. Well, wow. that's the end of the show, guys. Bye. <laughs> um, another fun fact, at the, in our intro, um, there's a part where Esther speaks backwards. Yes. And um, does anyone actually know what she says? It's from season one. She says, uh, life is a life shit sandwich. Life is a shit sandwich. <laughs> um, every bite you take just gets worse. Is that I think it? it's every day you take another bite. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not her own uh, words it's, it's actually from one of the criminals that we talked about Yes, so listen to our, pa our, our, our past episodes And our future and our present uh, Before we start, I just want to give a little You can hire this costume You can hire this costume from The Little Shop of Horrors costume marine collectibles in Mornington You've got a little pamphlet on each of your tables Halloween, they're going to have a big celebration um, and I'm a makeup artist. And there. Gemma you works too, there, and so do I. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's party, guys. Let's, let's party, go. guys. So, just so you know, we're going to be telling you a two-part story. In between each part of the story, we're going to be doing true crime trivia. So, strike in. <laughs> now, do we have a sound effect for this? At 1.44 on an English summer night, the mutilated and disemboweled body of Catherine Meadows. Trigger warning. <laughs> oh yeah, trigger warning. Trigger warning, guys. Um, in case you haven't realised, this is a true crime trivia night. So we're going to be talking about true crime. Continue. 
At 1.44am on an English summer night, the mutilated and disemboweled body of Catherine Eddowes was found lying on her back by police officer Edward Watkins. Her face was cut, her throat slashed, her earlobe was torn and her skirts were raised above her waist. Her intestines lay across the body and over her shoulder. Watkins had passed this area just 15 minutes before and nothing had seemed out of place. Whatever had happened, had happened quickly and quietly. He called for assistance to a nearby warehouse where night watchman and ex-policeman George Morris was sweeping the floor. For God's sake, mate, come to my assistance, yelled Watkins. But Morris hadn't heard a thing. Stop till I get my lamp. What is the matter? said Morris. Oh dear, the policeman said. Here is another woman cut to pieces. The date was 30th of September. The city was London, the year 1888. This is the story of Jack the Ripper. Yay, let's all clap. <laughs> so, as usual, my sources were Wikipedia, BBC America, Fact Feast on YouTube, JackTheRipper.org, two-part documentary, Jack the Ripper, a definitive story on binge, and, of course, the Daily Mail. <laughs> it's always the Daily Mail. Just a day earlier, on the 29th of September, Scotland Yard had been delivered a letter written in red ink that had been sent to the Central News Agency. The letter read in part as follows. Sorry guys, we're going to be doing some impersonations here. <clears throat> Dear boss. <laughs> I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed, ha, when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. I am down on oars and I shan't quit ripping them till I get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work. I've gone into Captain Hart. You have. I love my work and I want to start again. You will soon hear from me with my little funny games. My knife so nice and sharp I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. So, most, thank you. Most experts count three things as the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper. Deep slash wounds to the throat, extensive mutilation to the face, abdominal and genital area, and the removal of internal organs. Therefore, of up to 14 women killed between 1888 and 1891, those that most closely fit the MO leave us with what are known as the canonical five, the five women we believe to be the most likely victims of the Ripper. And these names are Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Now, these names are still debated to this day, adding to the overall mystery that is the Ripper case. We've tried to condense this into two easy parts, but um, this case is actually massive. I could have done a whole season on this case. So we've tried to make it as easy and quick to follow as possible. So, 
This is actually your line, Gemma. So let's go back and talk about the East End around this time. It's just a suggestion. <laughs> here I'm sitting here just going. <laughs> Do the hands. <laughs> okay. In the mid-19th century, Britain experienced a huge influx of Irish immigrants and many of these people moved into the East End of London. In the early 1880s, thousands of Jew Jewish refugees came from Eastern Europe when the pogroms, Gemma so kindly, I'm quite dyslexic, has um, written out the pronunciations for me in big capital space letters because I can't really read. So appreciate it. Um, the pogroms forced them to flee. On top of the existing population of the city, the East End was a crowded place to live. Whitechapel contained around 78,000 inhabitants by 1888, a massive amount of people for such a small area. Housing was hard to get, accommodations were cold, rarely with running water, and an outdoor toilet was often shared by dozens of people. Kind of like working um, in Melbourne Central. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes staircase banisters were missing because they'd been used for firewood in winters past. It's a sad, sad sort of image, isn't it? It's relatable. I mean, with the <laughs> cost of living going up. Am I right? Even then, not everyone was so lucky to live in a house. According to Wikipedia, approximately 8,500 people would be divided between 233 lodging houses within Whitechapel every night. These were called DOS houses, and people would stay one night at a time whenever they had the money. They often just offered a bed in a dormitory costing about four pence, which could be as simple as a sling of fabric tied from the wall to a wooden pole, or sometimes a real mattress. But there was another cheaper option for those that could only afford two pence, and that was the lean-to, or hangover, which was something like an old church pew with a rope stretched across it from one side to the other, and a whole group of people would sit with their arms sort of hanging across the rope, and that would be where they would sleep for the night. In the DOS houses, they'd be kicked out after eight hours, and they'd have to find the money to get food and a bed for the next night. And the reason they'd be kicked out after eight hours because there were so many people wanting to stay in the DOS houses that they would run three eight-hour sleeping shifts per day. Working conditions were just as bad. Many people working long hours in factories with really early mornings and only earning just enough money to get by. The East End was cold and it was dirty. Smoke from the factory chimneys and the coal fireplaces and the ships in the docks and the tanneries and all the industry of 19th century London caused the air to be thick with smog. There were diseases like cholera, syphilis, tuberculosis. The average life expectancy of an adult was just 37. 55% of children born in the East End died before, before they were the age of five. Many people were so depressed, hungry, tired, cold, and often homeless that their outlet was drinking, which meant that crime, robbery, and violence was a problem in the area. Often with pence, poor carpet, addictions, and minimal job prospects, many women turned to sex work. In 2022, this can be a very safe means of employment, but in 1888, it was a dangerous, unregulated industry. In October 1888, London's Metropolitan Police Service estimated that there were 62 brothels and 1,200 women working as sex workers in Whitechapel. It's a lot. 
It's like it's, I calculated it was something like 1.4% or something of the population. It's crazy. Um, many of these women didn't have the privilege of working within a dedicated house of business to carry out their work. Maybe they didn't have the right clothes, maybe they were too old, they were too thin, maybe they had an STI because these were sort of rampant at the time. Um, so maybe they had no choice but for look, to look for trade in the streets in the early hours of the morning. And so in this East End that we've just explained to you in 1888, begins our summer of terror. We all good? We can, you can hear us? And you're okay? <laughs> Do you need a hug? Yeah. John Wayne Gacy will give you a hug later. <laughs> Meet me up the back. <laughs> so, on Friday, th I'll hug you, but I'll charge you a fourpence. <laughs> God, get me DOS money. On Friday 31st of August at 3.45 a.m., the body of Mary Ann Nichols was discovered on the ground in a back street called Bucks Row in front of a stable by a cart driver named Charles Cross. Her throat had been slit twice and her abdomen had been opened and mutilated. Surrounding this large wound were smaller wounds caused by stabbing and slicing. The coroner concluded she had been killed at 3 a.m., so who was Polly Nichols? So her name was Marianne Nichols, um, born Marianne Walker um, on 26th of August 1845 in Soho, but she went by Polly. At age 18, she married a printer's machinist uh, named William Nichols, and between 1866 and 1879, they had five children. In late, in late 1880, the couple separated and William moved out with four of the children and Polly's father accused him of having an affair with the nurse that had been at the birth of their last son. But William said that the problem was Polly's heavy drinking. He later told the police that Polly had left him and become a sex worker. Whatever had happened, she had started working in the sex industry and it also collected a criminal record of minor offences such as drunkenness, disorderly conduct and prostitution. We know that after the separation, she lived at Lambeth Workhouse where she worked as a housekeeper. She came and went from the workhouse over the next couple of years and occasionally lived with her father. Her ex-husband paid her a weekly allowance of five shillings for about a year and a half, but he found out he was not legally required to support her if she was earning money through illicit means. So we went to the Lambeth Union and told them this. So we didn't have to pay her any money anymore, which, which made her situation really bad. And she was on her own from there. For the next six years, Polly lived in and out of workhouses and boarding houses, living off charitable handouts and a small amount of her own earnings. An issue was that she spent a lot of it on alcohol and she often slept rough on the street. In April 1888, things started to look up when Polly started working as a domestic servant to a couple named Mr. and Mrs. Cowdery. She wrote to her father to say, I just want to say you will be glad to know I am settled in my new place and going on all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am in charge. It's a grand place inside with trees and gardens back and front. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people and I have not much to do. I hope you're all right and the boy has work. 
goodbye for the present from yours truly, Polly. Sadly, she left there just after three months of service, stealing clothing and running away. In the summer of 1888, Polly was now probably at her lowest moment. So let's go to the 30th of August, 1888, which is this month only what? 100 uh, years ago? I can't do math. It's like 132 years ago. Quite a while, <laughs> quite, quite a bit back, right? Polly, uh, Polly was seen at around 11pm walking along Whitechapel Road. She visited the frying pan pub in Brick Lane, Spitalfield, <coughs> leaving at half past midnight on the 31st of August. By 11.20am, she was back at her Flower and Dean Street lodging house. At 2.10am, the deputy lodging housekeeper asked her to pay up for the night's bed. Polly said she didn't have any money because she had spent that night's earning on a new bonnet. We've all done that. <laughs> Just saying, we've all been there. <laughs> but they asked her to leave. She pointed at the new black velvet bonnet saying, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. <laughs> mm -hmm. <sighs> she left the lodging house to look for a client to pay for a night at the lodging house. At about 2.30 a.m., Polly was last seen alive by Emily Holland walking alone down Osborne Street. Emily thought Polly looked quite drunk and she slumped against the wall of a grocer's shop. Gro Emily tried to get Polly to come back with her to the Thor Street lodging house, but Polly said, I've had my lodging money three times today. I've spent it. She didn't seem worried about the getting the money. Emily said goodbye to Polly, and Polly walked towards Whitechapel Road. Poor Polly. Dun, dun, dun. At 3.40 a.m., while walking to work, a man named Charles Allen Cross found what he saw, what he thought at first was a tarpaulin lying on the ground in front of a gated stable entrance in Bucks Road. Upon closer inspection, Cross realised the tarpaulin was actually the body of a woman. She lay on her back with her eyes open, her legs straight, her skirt raised above her knees and her left hand touching the gate of the stable entrance. Another passing cart driver on his way to work, Robert Paul, approached the scene and saw Cross standing in the road, staring at her body. Cross called him over and both men walked towards the body. Cross touched the woman's face, which was still warm, then her hands, which were cold. Cross said she was dead, although Paul thought she may just be unconscious. They pulled down her skirt to cover her lower body, then went in search of a policeman. They found PC Jonas Meisen, and Cross told him, she looks to me, to me to be either dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead. Just before Meisen reached the scene, the body was happened upon by PC John Neal, who shone his lantern at it. He noticed there were no blood trails, suggesting she'd been killed on the spot. PC John Thane was passing, and Neil shouted to him, Here's a woman with her throat cut. Run at once for Dr Llewellyn. Dr Llewellyn arrived in Bucks Row at 4am and observed two deep knife wounds on the woman's throat. He surmised that she had been dead for approximately 30 minutes. He said to PC Neil, Move the woman to the mortuary. She's dead. I will make a further examination of her. Three horse slaughterers from a neighbouring knackery stopped by the scene and each were questioned and eliminated as suspects. Police questioned all tenants of Bucks Road and no one had seen or heard anything. 
Polly's body was taken to the old Morgue Street mortuary at 5.20 a.m. Dr. Llewellyn discovered that both sides of her face had been bruised by either a fist or the pressure of a thumb before her throat wounds had either been inflected, inflected, inflicted <laughs> from left to right. One of these two wounds measured eight inches and the other four inches in length. Both reached back to her spine. She had been stabbed twice in the vagina and her abdomen had been mutilated. Several incisions had also been inflicted across her abdomen post-mortem, causing bowels to protrude. I'm sorry guys that this is your Saturday night. <laughs> causing her bowels to protrude through her wounds, although no organs were missing. Three or four cuts ran down the right side of her body. These cuts have possibly been inflicted with a cork cutter or shoemaker's knife. Llewellyn suspected the murderer possessed some anatomical knowledge. Llewellyn estimated the injuries would have taken four to five minutes to complete and was surprised at how little blood was at the crime scene. He said there was about enough to fill two large wine glasses, a half a pint at the outside. So just a mega pint in it would recent be terms, right? Bit posher for a Dr. Llewellyn. What was that? Bit, po bit more posher. Uh oh, uh, uh, let's do it again. Um. About enough to fill two large wine glasses, a half a pint at the outside. Is that better? It's a pint, but yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But this was probably because the mutilation had occurred after she had died, limiting blood spatter. Duh. He believed Polly had been facing her attacker when he had held his hand across her mouth before cutting her throat. A woman from Lambeth Workhouse named Mary Ann Monk identified the body as that of Mary Ann Nichols that night, or Polly. Polly's ex-husband, William Nichols, testified on the second day of the inquest and he, had said, he said he had not seen his wife for approximately three years. The press linked these killings to two crimes that had happened a, a couple of months previous. So this is kind of important. There was an attack of a 45-year-old uh, woman named Emma Smith, um, and she was attacked. She managed to make it home, and then she died the next day. And then there was also the murder of 39-year-old Martha Tabram. But they were up till now attributed to gang attacks. However, the Star newspaper suggested instead that a single killer was responsible and suspicions of a serial killer at large in London led to Scotland Yard getting involved. They deployed detective inspectors Frederick Aberline, Henry Moore and Walter Andrews from the central office. Corona Baxter dismissed the possibility that her murder was connected with those of Smith and Tabram, however, as the weapons used were different, and in those cases, neither of the earlier cases involved a slash to the throat. However, by the time the inquest into Nichols' death had concluded, a fourth woman had been murdered, and Baxter noted the similarity of the injuries in the two cases is considerable. So we're at the point where people are starting to panic a little bit. Just over a week later, on Saturday 8th of September, the mutilated body of Annie Chapman was discovered at about 6am on the ground next to a doorway in the back of Yard 29 Hanbury Street, Spitterfield. Her throat was cut from left to right. She'd been disemboweled and her intestines and pieces of skin had been thrown out of her abdomen from each of her shoulders. 
The morgue examination revealed that part of her uterus and bladder were missing. The pathologist George Baxter Phillips was of the opinion that the murderer must have possessed anatomical knowledge to have sliced out the reproductive organs in a single movement with a blade about six to eight inches. Have you ever seen like a uterus? Like my friend sent me a photo of a uterus when she had hers removed. They're, they're tiny. I mean, I was a vet nurse, so I've seen little uteruses. Very little. Little, but I haven't, no, I haven't. I mean, you'd have to know something about uteruses stuff. Yeah, you'd have to know about bodies to be able to remove a uterus. Yeah. It's interesting. It is really interesting if you're looking at this from a perspective of like a criminology or a... A forensics perspective. He... I wonder if Jack the Ripper, because we've never caught Jack the Ripper. I'm sorry if I've given away the, the end. <laughs> but if you haven't heard of Jack the Ripper... Guys, what are you doing here? <laughs> He must have had a real, obviously he's had a real issue with females. Yeah. And it is very interesting. I mean, can you relate it to Paul Denyer, which is, you guys should all know about Paul Denyer. If you don't, please research. He's, so he, his parole comes up next year, right? But he obviously had an issue with females too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's very interesting to see where Jack the Ripper, if he wanted to move to Frankston. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very Frankston thing, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sweat. I'm not sick, guys. I'm wearing a fat suit under this, and I am burning up. <laughs> it's like sitting on a couch. Okay. It's yours. Oh, it's me. Ah, a beautiful, we're coming up yeah. to another really lovely, her tongue was protruding and her face was swollen, so Dr. Phillips believes she may have been strangled with the handkerchief she wore around her neck before her throat was cut. Once again, there was no blood trail, so it's probable she was killed where she was found. So, who was Annie Chapman? Uh, she was also known as Dark Annie, just for a like, little fact there. Uh, Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith in Paddington, 25th of September, 1840. She was the first of five children born to George Smith and Ruth Chapman. And George was a soldier, and their family revolved around his military service, served between London and Windsor. It's believed that Annie first took a drink when she was quite young. Mostly, she liked rum. And her brother and two sisters tried to keep her away from drinking, and they even got her to sign a promise to stop but it didn't last, unfortunately. Annie was described as being a very civil and industrious when sober person, but worse for wear when she was drunk. When she was 23, her father was working as a valet, but sadly died by suicide, cutting his own throat. In May 1869, Annie married John Chapman. He was also, fun fact, he was married to, uh, sorry, he was related somehow to her mother, so she's, Kind of. She's kind, of what? she's kind of marrying her cousin. Okay, Frankston. I didn't put that in there, but it is, it's an Sorry, interesting little factoid. I'm Frankston, I'm allowed to say it. John got a good job working for a nobleman in Bond Street. They actually had a good, pretty good life together. Over the next 10 years, Annie and John had three children, Emily, Annie and John Alfred. By the time John was born, Annie had started to live a sober life. 
but he was born physically disabled and they, they put him into a, a medical institution near Windsor where the family re relocated as well. And Annie at some point around this time started drinking again. John took a job as a coachman to a farm bailiff and their family moved into rooms in the attic of his cottage. Tragically, Emily at the age of 12 died of meningitis on her brother John's second birthday. This prompted happy birthday, that was This prompted both Annie and John to elevate their drinking and Annie was arrested several times for public intoxication. Their marriage only lasted a couple more years. They separated in 1884 and their daughter went to live with John while Annie relocated to London and he paid her with a weekly allowance of 10 shillings. Do you know how much that is? No, but it's a, that's, it's a good allowance. Like, I mean, it, 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 it's gonna... What? You're not gonna be what? sleeping on the lean-to. Okay. Like, you could, you could buy a, an actual room with what? a bed. Okay. Annie lived in Whitechapel with another man who quickly left her when her husband John died on Christmas Day, 1886, probably because she'd lost her income. He died because she lost her income? So she had the 10 shillings of a week from her ex-husband, but then her ex-husband died, so she didn't oh. get her allowance anymore. So her new boyfriend was like, see ya. Okay. Gemma is obviously the one who writes the scripts. She's very smart. I've been living in Victorian London she for two this, months. She wears this every day. <laughs> I write by candlelight. I drink gin. <laughs> She became very depressed, not Gemma. Um, Annie. <laughs> Annie Jr. is believed to have gone to France after her father's death and was either placed in an institution or joined the circus. Fun fact, I've done both of those things. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> She returned to London after her mother's death and moved in with her little brother to their grandmother's house. So going into the summer of 1888, Annie was living at Crossingham's lodging house at Dorset Street, paying eight pence, eight pence, for a night in a double bed. Whoa, so ten pence a month from... No, no, ten shillings a month. Oh, I'm so a, dyslexic. A week, sorry. I'm just going to let you guys... She's able to get, like, this room with a double bed, but I did read somewhere that she had to share it with an elderly woman. Oh, I don't know. Look, it's a I bed. Mean, if she looks like Jessica Lang, then, like... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. She earned some income from crochet work, selling flowers, and occasional sex work. Eight days before she died, Annie had a disagreement with another lodger named Eliza Cooper. Some say the two were apparently both in love with a man named Harry, although Eliza said it was over a bar of soap. Um, so Annie had borrowed this bar of soap and she didn't give it back and they hated each other. Later, they fought at the Britannia pub and Eliza hit Annie in the face and chest, resulting in a black eye and bruised breast. Like, they really disliked each other. Annie saw Amelia Palmer on Dorset Street on 7th of September, the day before she died. Annie and Amelia were friends. I love this. They often wrote letters to each other. Like, they live in the same city, but they sort of, their little pen pals, it's cute. Um, Amelia noticed Annie looked pale, and Amelia, and told Amelia that she felt too ill to do anything. 
Now, sadly, it turned out that her brain and lungs were in an advanced stage of disease that would have killed her in a few months. Um, we don't know what sort of disease she had, but the punches that Eliza had given her in the chest and the stomach um, did not help. Exactly. God, not a you'd good feel thing. bad, wouldn't you? Bless her heart. On the night of her death, the lodging house deputy, Timothy Donovan, and the watchman, John Evans, saw Annie just after midnight on 8th of September. She didn't have any money to lodge that night, possibly because she'd just been too sick to work. She had nothing. She drank a pint of beer in the kitchen with fellow lodger Frederick Stevens at approximately 12.10 a.m. Frederick saw Annie take a box of pills from her pocket. The box broke, so she wrapped the pills in a piece of envelope that she'd taken from a mantelpiece. At approximately 1.35 a.m., Annie returned to the lodging house eating a baked potato. She left again telling John um, she wouldn't be long and she'd return with the money for her bed. Uh, John last saw Chapman walking in the direction of Spitalfield Market. Shortly before 5am on 8th of September, the son of a resident of 29 Hanbury Street, John Richardson, entered the backyard of the property to check the paddock of a cellar, padlock? Padlock <laughs> of a cellar in the yard. He sat on the rear step of the property to trim a piece of leather from his boot. Nothing at the scene was out of place. Fifteen minutes later, a tenant of 27 Hanbury Street named Albert Kadosh entered the yard of the property to use the outdoor toilet. He heard a woman say, no, no, before hearing the sound of something or someone falling against the fence, dividing the backyards of number 27 and 29. At 6 a.m., Annie Chapman's mutilated body was discovered by an elderly resident of 29 Hanbury Street named John Davis. Davis alerted three neighbours to the situation and they ran to find a policeman. At the corner of Hanbury Street, they found Divisional Inspector Joseph Chandler and told him, another woman has been murdered. <laughs> it is crazy. There's a lot of people around. Yeah. You know, there's like policemen walking around, there's dudes going to work, like people are getting murdered and like it's happening so fast and so quietly. Or just everyone who's walking around is twiddling their thumbs and choosing not to pay attention. They've got their AirPods in. Easy to be a serial killer in these days. Mm. Mm. Bloody dark too. Well, yeah. Yeah, 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 the lighting, the lighting. And the smog. The smog. The ghost. We can get into it. Uh, Chandler followed the man to Chapman's body before requesting backup for more officers as well as police surgeon Dr. Bagster Phillips, George Bagster Phillips. Other officers arrived within minutes and the doctor at 6.30am. So Dr. Phillips saw the links between Annie's body and Polly Nichols the previous week. So this has only happened eight days apart. Polly had suffered two deep slash wounds to the throat cut from left to right before her, mur mur her murderer had mutilated her abdomen and a blade of similar size and design had be been used for both of the murders. There were also six areas of blood spatter on the wall and steps of the house. A leather apron, partially submerged in a dish of water located close to a tap was discovered close to her body. And that is the end of part one. So, Go and drink.
Go and spend money. Have a smoke. Meet me out the back in the smokers area. Cupcakes are sold out. Cupcakes are sold out. Come and take a load off. Cupcakes for cats. They are not cat flavoured. <laughs> are we all a little bit tipsy? Do you guys have any um, concerns you want to raise? Don't. <laughs> We're not qualified. Five star reviews only. Have you gone to the toilet? There's a bucket. <laughs> All right, let's get started. <laughs> oh, it's me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so let's talk about the first suspects in the case. I thought we already did that. No. Oh, the suspects, not the victims. All right. <laughs> I'm studying criminology, man. This is <laughs> Technically, they are suspected victims. Well, they're definitely victims. The, the ones who were murdered. All right, let's get on with it. On 10th of September, the police arrested a local Jewish man called John Pizer. Thank you for the pronunciation there. Who was called Leather Apron and who also had a reputation for terrorizing local sex workers. His alibi for the two most recent murders were corroborated and he was released without charge. What we need to acknowledge is the racism in London at this point. Many people, including many Jewish and Irish people, had come to London from overseas to escape political unrest in Eastern Europe and racial tensions grew in London as a result. At the inquest of one of the witnesses, Mrs. Elizabeth Long testified that she had seen Chapman talking to a man at about 5.30 a.m. just beyond the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, where Chapman was found. Mrs. Long described him as over 40, a little taller than Chapman, a dark complexion, and a foreign, shabby, genteel appearance, which is a little racist. Just a little. <laughs> She said he was wearing a brown deer stalker hat with a dark overcoat, kind of like what you're wearing tonight, Gemma. <laughs> You'll never know. You're, you've got a shabby genteel <laughs> look to genital. <laughs> According to Mrs. Long, the man had asked Chapman the question, will you? To which Chapman replied, yep. <laughs> look at my jolly new bonnet though. <laughs> look at my bonnet. Look at my, oh, that's another thing I, someone was saying, oh, Esther's balls, Esther's balls dingle dangling. <laughs> yes, I get it. I have multiple balls on me tonight and they do get in the way. I don't know how men do it. Shocking. No, thank you. So at this time, panic at the thought of a serial killer on the loose caused an uproar in the area. A mob attacked the Commercial Road Police Station, suspecting that the murderer was being held there. There were rumours that the attacks were Jewish ritual killings, and anti-Semitic pro uh, protests took to the streets. As a result, Samuel Montague, the Member of Parliament for Whitechapel, offered a reward for £100 which is about £12,000 today, for information leading to an arrest. An interesting just side story, my sister was telling me uh, in the break, she looked up a historical uh, currency converter and apparently 10 shillings was about 
So not a great. That's quite expensive. I mean, I'm broke, yeah, so but anything for over whole, $30, but, I'm like, mm. But for a whole week of accommodation, it's not a great deal. I mean, she's just getting by. Yeah. But there was people that were doing a lot worse than mm. she was. Yeah, true. So local residents also founded a group called the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee under the chairmanship of George Lusk, and they also offered a reward for the arrest of the killer. The committee employed two private detectives to investigate the case. A German hairdresser, while this was happening, named Charles Ludwig, was taken into custody on 18th of September on suspicion of the murders, but he was released soon after when two more women were killed while he was in custody. So the police are kind of scrambling, they're trying to arrest people, it's not really going anywhere and people are getting really angry. Next comes what is known as the double event. The Ripper strikes not just once, but twice in one night. On Sunday the 30th of September, the body of Elizabeth Stride was discovered at about 1am in Dootfield's yard by a man named Louis, oh girl, DM Schutz. Thank you for, again, phonetically spelling, phonetically spelling everything for me. <laughs> Inside the gateway of 40 Burner Street at Whitechapel, she was lying in a pool of blood with her throat cut from right to left. Left Just to right. Left to right. Does it Super matter? Imp- yes. <laughs> so it's important. It's still a cut. But I mean, yeah, it determines what his... Grabbed um, her. Like, if he's grabbed her from behind, he's come around left to right. No, that's true. I just had a thought. The lady in the pink beanie, where are you? You, okay. What were you saying to me in the break? You said to mention something. I can't remember. Oh, girl, this is awkward. You said, remember to say this. Now we both can't remember. Let's get back to the left, right. Um, cutting of throats. Cutting of throats, beautiful. She had been killed minutes before, but her body was otherwise in one piece, and by that I mean she was not mutilated. People theorised that the person who murdered Elizabeth had disturbed, was disturbed before he could do any kind of... (laughs) The body was disturbed. Yeah, she's dead. No, I'm saying the killer's disturbed. Did I stuff up? It's getting hot up here in this fat suit, guys. I'm starting to see visions. He was disturbed before he could do any further damage to the corpse. Maybe the man who has discovered the body scared him off. Maybe was correct. He was I think so. (laughs) I think so. He's just gone. He's cut her throat. Someone's come down the street. He's gone. All right, time to go. We'll find someone else. Who was Elizabeth Stride? I can hear you all asking. Elizabeth was born. Elizabeth... Gustav daughter on 27th of September 1843 in a village in Sweden. At 16, she moved to Gothenburg to work as a domestic worker at a couple of different houses over the next few years. Unlike the other canonical victims, did I say that right, Gemma? Sure did. Thank you. Of the white, thank you. <laughs> of the white, ch- I went to a Christian school that didn't teach science. And words either, I taught myself. I was like a little beggar boy on the street. Gemma, what does kinokanu mean? Got any buttons? Got any buttons? (laughs) Stride became a sex worker in early life. 
Gothenburg police records dating from March 1865 confirm her arrest for prostitution. Sex work, but back in the day, obviously, it's called prostitution. Sadly, the, like, we would call the, the job itself sex work, but if a police officer yeah. charges you with doing it's it, it's classified as prostitution. Bastards. Sadly, on 21st of April, 1865, Elizabeth gave, oh, gave birth to a stillborn girl. I thought you had written, sadly, on 21st of April, Elizabeth just gave birth. <laughs> like, what? No, this is not a joke. There are, there are records that suggest that she had been uh, treated for venereal disease, so it is surmised that the, the stillborn birth was because she had been ill with the disease. Right. <laughs> it's my turn, apparently. In February 1866, she moved to London. Some say she relocated to England because she got a job as a domestic servant, but some articles sort of hint that she kind of had a, a sugar daddy situation and she'd moved in, into a house. Um, but other people say she just had family in London and she needed a break and she went over to the UK. But while she was there, she was very, very clever. She learned to speak both English and Yiddish while she was in London, apart from her native Swedish. On 7th of March, 1869, Elizabeth married John Stride, who was a carpenter and he was 22 years older than her. They ran a coffee shop together, so they were doing pretty well. But after about five years of marriage, they went their separate ways. Unfortunately, two years later, John died of tuberculosis. So Elizabeth kind of goes off on her own and she ends up in the lodging houses. She got a little bit of money from the Church of Sweden while she was in London and she occasionally earned money from sewing and house cleaning. She was described as having a calm temperament, although she appeared before the Thames Magistrates Court approximately eight times for drunk and disorderly conduct and the use of obscene language. And she also sometimes used fake names while she was there as well. So she was kind of a troublemaker. I love to court to get drunk. Like that's the place to be to <laughs> eight times to get pissed. Maybe they've got a oh, toilet. Here comes bloody Elizabeth again. No, it's Sandra this time. <laughs> <laughs> From 1885 until her death, she lived on, on and off with a local dock labourer called Michael Kidney. <laughs> Beautiful. They had a rocky relationship. Yeah, no shit. When you got a nickname like that, <laughs> a nickname, a surname, a actual stop. name. Yeah. <laughs> Mick Kidney. <laughs> surname out there. <laughs> My nickname in school was Esther Molester. <laughs> so I'm allowed to make fun of other people. In, in April 1887, she filed a formal assault charge against the kidney, although she did not pursue the charge in court and the case was dismissed. We should not joke about domestic violence. No. But, with a name like that, 
<laughs> you just, that's a sign in itself, isn't it? You shouldn't be dating Mike Kidney. <laughs> <laughs> Following an argument on the 26th of September, 1888, Elizabeth and Mike Kidney again separated and she went back to live at the lodging house. She earned money from cleaning and sex work. On the evening of the 29th of September and in the early morning of the 30th of September, the night of her murder, she was seen with a short man with a dark moustache wearing a morning suit. Does that mean he's naked? No, that's a birth suit, isn't it? <laughs> Birthday suit? Birth, no, a morning birth suit. suit. <laughs> Placenta. <laughs> and a bowl hat. God, what a look. <laughs> At approximately 11pm. Then later she was seen kissing a man wearing a peaked cap black coat and dark trousers, very nice, at approximately 11.45. So she has had a busy night. A busy night. night, yeah. Good for her, good for her. At 12.35 a.m., PC William Smith saw Elizabeth with a man wearing a hard felt hat standing opposite the International Working Men's Educational Club. God, that is such a club that like an un... It's not the frying pan. No, it's just, a, it's just a club you give, you, you join to sound like you're better than what you really are. I'm at the International Education Club for Men. Uh, what are you guys doing there? What are you doing? Are you, you, talk, really, are you, you talking about educational just, things? Are you just hanging out and like looking at, looking at each other's birthday suits and bowler hats? They're drinking pints. A pint, sorry. <laughs> sorry, whoever came up to me in the break and said, it's a, it's a pint. That was Sorry, Amber Heard. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Um, oh, it was a Jewish social club. <laughs> Again, great. Great. The man, the man was carrying a package about 18 inches, brackets 45 centimetres long for you Australians out there. <laughs> <laughs> Good, we're going right. <laughs> Between 12.35 a.m. and 12.45 a.m. and 12.45 a.m., dock worker James Brown... Oh, we've got everyone. We've got everyone in this story. Saw a woman he believed to be Elizabeth standing with her back against a wall at the corner of Burner Street, speaking with a man in a long black coat. It was me. Brown heard Stride say, no, not tonight, some other night. Mm. Was she tired or was he just a creep? A murderer. Stride's body was discovered at approximately 1 a.m. So 20, not even 20 minutes, 15 minutes later on Sunday 30th September by uh, Louis Dimitschutz. And he had driven into the dark yard with his horse and a two-wheeled cart, and he held up a match to the body. And he immediately ran inside the working men's club to check his wife was safe. Then he reported his discovery. Why would you do that? Why would you go up to a body that's leaking gassy fluids? Well, what had actually and happened was to your wife. Wouldn't you know that? I mean, yeah, if her face is all. Well, what, what actually, would, I, what I, I hope you know that that's not your wife. His horse actually reared and sort of ran off the road. Right. So he's like, ew, what's this? Let's so set this body on fire. Investigate. 
Well, it's pitch black, so True. his horse has seen something. He doesn't know what it is, so yeah. On 3rd of October, our friend Michael Kidney formally identified Elizabeth's body. So it took him like four days. Uh, he drunkenly accused the police of incompetence, stating that if he had been a policeman on duty during the murder, he would have shot himself. What? <laughs> oh, right. What he's saying Some is... incompetence. I thought exactly. he was saying if he was hired in, on that night. No. <laughs> but he, Michael Kidney, he's been suspected of being Stride's murderer because of their turbulent relationship and because there's no record of where he was that night. Um, but in recent years, it seems that suspect, um, he, he's no longer sort of a suspect. People don't really think it's him. I think he's too drunk. Mm. Police surgeon Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who had examined the body of Annie Chapman, checked, uh, sorry, carried out the post-mortem. He found there was a deep, clean cut across her neck, six inches in length. It is possible that her murderer may have pulled her backwards onto the ground by her neckerchief before cutting her throat. Police searched the crime scene and interrogated everyone that had been at the International Working Men's Educational Club as well as all residents of the area. So they're getting really vigilant. They're like, right, everyone, we're knocking doors. We're, we're asking everyone, where were you last night? What did you say? What's going on? Israel Schwartz told investigators he had seen Stride being attacked outside Dootfield's yard at approximately 12.45 a.m. by a man with dark hair, a small brown moustache, and approximately five feet, five inches in height. So what, like that big? Is small. Small. According to Schwartz, this man attempted to pull Stride into the street before turning her around and showing, shoving her to the ground. The man shouted the word Lipsky, either to Schwartz or to another man who had been left at the club, who had left the club and lit a pipe. Some say this was a some say this was a Jewish slur at the time, referring to a man of the same name having been controversially executed the previous year for suspected murder of a pregnant woman by poisoning. On so just to go, go into the Lipsky thing, like the previous year this guy had been really controversially, I think he was hung because he killed uh, his pregnant friend, girlfriend, whatever, was found murdered in this room by poison and he was found under a bed like hiding damn and everyone was like he's the murderer he's the murderer well, yeah it's suspicious and even queen victoria opposed like his execution everybody was did he do it did he not do it so this term lipsky mm. it was sort of turned into a, a jewish slur Oof, not good on 19 of the on wait am i still going yes you're still sorry i <laughs> On the 19th of October, Chief Inspector Swanson reported that 80,000 leaflets appealing for information about the murder had been distributed around Whitechapel, noting that 2,000 people had been interrogated or investigated in relation to her death. And considering there's 82,000 people in Whitechapel at the time, it's pretty much a leaflet per person, so everyone knows what's going on. Yeah, well, you'd hope so. Well, yeah, yeah, true, true. The internet, right? Mm-hmm but a leaflet. Kind of like what's on each of your tables. I hope you've read your leaflets about this beautiful fundraiser we're doing. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> 
Modern true crime enthusiasts actually think that Elizabeth Stride's murder was nothing to do with the other Whitechapel murders because the body was not mutilated. Plus, it was the only murder to occur south of Whitechapel Road. Also, some think that the blade used might have been shorter and of a different design. Most experts, however, consider the similarities in the case distinctive enough to connect Stride's murder with at least two of the earlier ones, as well as another murder that took place the very same night. So, at 1.45am, just 45 minutes after Elizabeth's body was found, Catherine Eddowes' body was found by PC Ed, uh, Edward Watkins, who we met at the start of our story. She was stabbed, her throat slashed from left to right with a sharp pointed knife, at least six inches long, her face was cut and her intestines arranged across her body and over her shoulder. Her left kidney and most of her uterus were removed and her ear was torn. Her skirts were pulled up and uh, Catherine was about a 12 minute walk away from Burner Street where Elizabeth was found. So it's, it's totally viable that the same person could have walked to this location, killed her. It, it could have been completely the same person. A watchman named George Clapp and, and an off-duty policeman who lived at Three Mitre Square, Richard Pierce, later reported having seen and heard nothing strange. So this is happening so fast and so quietly, it's, it's all part of the legend. Uh, Dr George Sequeira arrived at the scene at 1.55am and Dr Frederick Brown just minutes later. So Catherine Eddowes, the second person to be killed on this one evening, was born at Wolverhampton on 14th of April in 1842, the sixth of 12 children born to tin plate worker uh, George Eddowes and his wife Catherine, who worked as a cook. Ten of their 12 children survived. The family moved to London a year after Eddowes' birth and she was educated at St John's Charity School. And they moved around a fair few times, and by 1857, when she was 15, both of Catherine's parents had died. So all the kids went to a workhouse, and some of them were able to learn trades. Catherine moved around from London to Wolverhampton, then Birmingham, living with various family members, and she was described as a very jolly woman, always singing, intelligent and scholarly, but possessed of a fierce temper. While she was in Birmingham, Catherine had a relationship with former soldier Thomas Conway and they had two children. There is no evidence that they ever got married but Catherine had his initials tattooed in blue ink on her left forearm. In 1868, they moved to London where they had another son and Catherine began heavily drinking. Because Thomas didn't drink, this caused problems and their relationship became violent. Catherine left Thomas when her eldest daughter had left home and the younger children stayed with him. The following year, she was living with a fruit salesman named John Kelly in various lodging houses. Isn't there another John Kelly in, um... It was Mary uh, Kelly. Who was, I was gonna say, who's Ned Kelly? No, <laughs> that's... No, there's a few Kellys here, <laughs> yeah. Catherine earned money doing cleaning and sewing for the Jewish community, although she is believed to have occasionally engaged in sex work. Sometimes she borrowed money from her daughter or a sister. On the 28th of September, Catherine was staying at the Mile End Casual Ward, 
Chatting with the superintendent there, she said she intended to claim the reward for the arrest of the Whitechapel murderer, adding, I think I know him. At 8.30 p.m. on Saturday 29th of September, Catherine was taken in, into police custody after being found lying drunk on the pavement. At Bishop Gate Police Station, she was told she would be detained until she was sober enough to leave. When asked her name, Catherine said the word nothing and fell asleep in a cell. Shortly after 12.30 in the morning of 30th of September, Catherine asked PC George Hutt when she could be released. In response, Hutt replied, when you're capable of taking care of yourself, and he released her at 1 a.m. So in 30 minutes. <laughs> right. Yep. So she went home and did her taxes. <laughs> she was last seen alive in a narrow walkway named Church Passage at 1.35 a.m. by three witnesses, Joseph Lewinda, Joseph Levy and Harry Harris, who had just left the Imperial Club on Duke Street. Lewinda later testified that Catherine was talking to a man of medium build with a fair moustache at the entrance to Church Passage. She was facing the man with one hand on his chest, though not in a manner to suggest she was resisting him. Lewenda thought she, he, he looked like a sailor and he walked past them. Just 10 minutes later, Catherine's mutilated body was found at Mitre Square by Officer Edward Watkins. So this happened really, really fast. Because Catherine's left kidney and part of her womb had been removed, as well as the overall mutilation of the body like Annie, Elizabeth and Polly, it was generally believed that Jack the Ripper was the killer. For this reason, and due to the location of Mitre Square in the City of London Police, sorry, uh, because of the lo lo location of Mitre Square, the City of London Police joined the existing Metropolitan Police manhunt. So I believe that there was like a jurisdiction sort of area that separated the, the two police forces. And at this point, they've joined forces. The examining pathologist, Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, conducted the post-mortem upon Catherine noting, quote, and I, oh, not quote, brackets, and I've edited the entire list of injuries. That was me talking. Why? There was a lot. All right. So use your imagination. Quote, do you guys want me to do an accent again? Yeah. <laughs> posh, 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 be posh. <laughs> Catherine Kim, done. <laughs> the face was very much mutilated. <laughs> the tip of the nose was quite detached. The cause of death was a hemorrhage from the left common carotid artery. Carotid artery. Carotid. 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 It was really bad. The death was immediate and the mutilations were inflicted after death. There would be much blood on the murderer. There the would not be much blood. There would not be much blood on the murderer. <laughs> the left kidney, carefully taken out and removed, I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. It required a great deal of knowledge to have removed the kidney and to know where it was placed. Such a knowledge might be possessed by one in the habit of cutting up animals. Mm. 
it would take at least five minutes. Five minutes, Brett? <laughs> Thank you. We do all of this for free. <laughs> Detective Constable Daniel Holtz issued instructions for the neighbourhood to be searched and every man stopped and examined. Sounds a bit sexy to me. That's it, he said. Did someone groan? At 3am, a blood-stained piece of Catherine's apron was found lying in a doorway at Goulson Street, about 500 metres from the murder scene and close to where Catherine had been living. There was chalk writing on the wall of the doorway which read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And Jews were spelled J-U-W-E-S. Now, we don't know whether the graffiti was written by the murderer when they dropped the piece of apron or if it was just there already on the wall. It was not uncommon to see anti-Semitic graffiti at that time. But at 5am, Commissioner Warren ordered the words be washed off for fear that they would spark anti-Semitic riots. There were never any photographs of this graffiti, sadly but the words were taken down on paper, including all the spelling errors. John Kelly positively identified the body as Catherine, saying he had last seen her alive about two o'clock the day before she died. Criticism of the Metropolitan Police and the Home Secretary, Henry Matthews, continued to mount as so little progress was being made with the investigation. The City Police and Lord Mayor of London offered a reward for 500 pounds for information leading to the capture of the murderer. The police began to use bloodhounds to track the killer, but they would get confused with all the city smells. I think that the bloodhounds had actually been trained out in the countryside, so they come to the city, they're like, well, everything smells like blood. So, so much going on here. Let's go to the park. <laughs> <laughs> Um, also, the, owners, the owner of the dogs, um, which is a man named Edwin Brow, was concerned that d the dogs would be poisoned if the plan was discovered by the public what was happening. And this is where the police received the Dear Boss letter that we got at the start of the story. On 1st of October, a postcard was, was received by the Central News Agency. It was covered in smudged blood and said... I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the chip. You'll hear about saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time, number one, squealed a bit, but couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears off for the police. Thanks for keeping Mark letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. His grammar is terrible. Very bad. It's very similar to the, um, Berkowitz. Why do these serial killers write these terrible letters that go to the media and none of them can spell the grammar shit? <laughs> I thought it was Christian high schools. <laughs> <laughs> on the 16th of October, George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee received another letter claiming to be from the killer and was signed, from hell. Definitely a Christian school kid, that's what we used to like a lot of hard work. <laughs> the handwriting was different to the Dear Boss letter and Saucy Jackie 
postcard, but the letter arrived with a small box containing half a human kidney, preserved in alcohol. So there is that. There is that. Well, but... Where's the other half? That's well... The question. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the letters writer claimed that they had that he had extracted it from the body of Catherine Eddowes and that he had fried and ate the missing half. But the worst is yet to come. So on Friday 9th of November, Mary Jane Kelly was murdered in the single room where she lived at 13 Millers Court, Spitalfield. So she actually had a whole, like a dedicated room that she rented which um, compared to the others, she's actually doing quite well. Annie Chapman had lived in the neighboring street, Dorset Street, and Catherine Eddowes was reported to occasionally have slept rough around this area. So Mary Kelly's severely mutilated body was discovered shortly after 10.45 a.m. lying on the bed. So with the other murders, they've been discovered 10, 15 minutes later. This one was discovered, you know, a full eight hours later or something like six hours later. So this was a really bad one. I don't know if you've ever seen the crime scene photos of this one, Mary Kelly, but she like almost mm. doesn't look like a person mm. anymore. Mm. The first doctor at the scene, Dr. George Baxter Phillips, believed that Kelly was killed by a slash to the throat but the body was so badly attacked, it was almost impossible to find a definitive cause of death. This was the most frenzied attack yet. People think that it's because she lived in a private room rather than on the streets that the attacker had time to do more damage than if he was in danger of being caught in public. After Mary had been killed, her abdominal cap... Abdominable... It's a hard one. <laughs> Abdominable, abdominal, abdominal. <laughs> I just no cannot. <laughs> abdominal. My my mind is always on Bigfoot. Like in the back. She's of my obsessed. Mind. She has actually, Bigfoot tattooed on her back, like a full I, back piece. I'm gonna like. Not true. <laughs> Her abdominal cavity was sliced open and all of her viscera removed and spread around the room. Her breasts had been cut off, her face mutilated beyond recognition, and her thighs were cut through to the bone with some of the muscles removed. Unlike the other victims, she was only wearing light underwear. Some of her clothes were folded neatly on a chair and some were found burnt in the grate. Jack the Ripper is such an asshole. It was a really bad one. He is disgusting. I yeah. hope he rots. It's possible that the clothes had been burned by the murderer to provide light as the room was otherwise only dimly lit by a single candle. Her state of undress and folded clothes have led to suggestions that she was undressed herself before lying down on the bed, which would indicate that she was killed by someone she knew, by someone she believed to be a client, or when she was asleep or intoxicated. Who was Mary Kelly? Mary Kelly's backstory is the last known, is the least known of all the victims, and we don't know how much of the following is true. According to Joseph Barnett, the man Mary had most recently lived with prior to her murder. Kelly had told him she was born in Limerick, Ireland, in about 1863, and had only and 
and that her moderately wealthy family moved to Wales when she was a child. Mary told one acquaintance that her parents had disowned her, although she remained close with her sister. Barnett also recalled Mary mentioning having seven brothers and at least one sister. Well, you'd hope so, because it said she's close to her sister, so... You'd hope she'd have one sister, otherwise she's got an imaginary friend. Yeah, true. <laughs> a woman Mary lodged with at one point described her as being an excellent scholar and an artist of no mean degree. However, at the inquest into Kelly's murder, Barnett informed the coroner that she had often asked him to read newspaper reports of the Whitechapel murders to her, suggesting that she was actually illiterate. Mm. When Mary was aged around 16, she apparently married a coal miner who was killed several, several years later in a mining explosion. Mary relocated to Cardiff and it's believed that she began sex work here, possibly being introduced to the job by her cousin. There are no South Wales police records to suggest that Mary was ever arrested for prostitution. So it's really um, sort of, they're surmising. Uh, they're trying mm. to piece together her history from not a great amount of information, to be honest. In 1884, Mary moved to London, where she worked for a tobacconist in Chelsea, then as a domestic servant, and later in a high-priced point brothel in the more wealthy West End of London. <clears throat> she became one of the most popular girls there and spent her money on expensive clothing and hiring a carriage. She was invited by a client named Frances Craig to go live in France, but she came back to England within a couple of weeks not liking it there. She did, however, sometimes use the name Marie Jeannette after that. It seems she fell on hard times at this point. In 1885, Kelly stayed in lodgings near the docks and began drinking a lot. She moved around from lodging house to lodging house and moved in with a couple of boyfriends, including Joseph Barnett, who worked as a fish porter at Billingsgate Market. They were evicted from their lodgings for non-payment of rent and drunk and disorderly conduct. They moved over to Brick Lane and must have gone their separate ways around this time because then Mary moved to Miller's Court where she died. A great crowd of mourners attended Mary's funeral on 19th of November and it was reported they even held up the funeral procession from getting to the cemetery. She was laid to rest at the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leiterston. This was vastly different to Annie Chapman a few months earlier who was buried in an unmarked grave. Question, do they know where that grave is now? I don't think they do. I shouldn't have asked it. Yeah, sorry. No, oh, I'm sorry Annie. for asking. We should have researched it before this night. Well, it, it, all of the information that I read said that she was in an unmarked grave. Nothing ever Ooh. suggested that she had been exhumed to go into a proper cemetery or... Sad. Yeah, it's really it's sad. A sad story. <clears throat> sorry, guys. We could have done something... Um, no, this is great. This is great. <laughs> We're all having a great time. Saturday night. Saturday night, <laughs> talking about murder. <laughs> Kidneys, go. So on the 10th of November, the police surgeon Thomas Bond wrote to Robert Anderson, head of the London CID, detailing the similarities between the five murders of Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes and Kelly. No doubt committed by the same hand. 
On the same day, the Cabinet resolved to offer, to offer a pardon to any accomplice who came forward with information that led to the conviction of the actual murderer. The Metropolitan Commi Police Commissioner reported that the Whitechapel murderer remained unidentified despite 143 extra plainclothes policemen deployed in Whitechapel in November and December. It has been suggested that the missing organs from the victims weren't actually taken out by the murderer, but were actually removed by mortuary staff who took advantage of bodies that had already been opened to extract organs that they could sell as surgical <coughs> specimens, which was not uncommon at the time. We don't know how many women Jack really killed. It is possible that he committed up to 14 separate murders. Many have presented their theories in the 130 years since Jack the Ripper walked the streets. Some pointed the finger at surgeon to the royal family, Sir John Williams. Some believed he was American serial killer H.H. Holmes. Some say it was Elizabeth Stride's boyfriend, Michael Kidney, or Mary Kelly's boyfriend, Joseph Barnett. However, the real perpetrator was never found, never identified, and never apprehended. In the end, information from the 11 deaths were gathered into a single police file referred to as the Whitechapel murders. Much of the original material has been either stolen, lost or destroyed. And that was our heavily abridged version of the murders of Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Kelly. Thanks guys, thanks for hanging in there. There was a rumour that they found a piece of material a few years back that was heavily, it was stiff like a board covered in 130 year old semen that they believed was Jack the Ripper's but it turned out just to be a piece of cloth with semen on it. <laughs> it was a sock. I hope that wasn't my daddy yelled that out. I think it was your sister's boyfriend. <laughs> I just wanted to thank the Wondergram. Thank you so much for having us. I know that we're um, we're an acquired taste. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not as glamorous as the people that you normally have here. And I believe, I think tonight's, is tonight closing night? Thank you so much for having us for closing night. We really appreciate it. I've had so many good times here and we are going to miss this place. So thank you. But also, it's, it's a couple of nights of finals, because this is actually the final night of season five. This is episode 13 of season five, and Esther is going to be moving along from the podcast. This is my last um, night. So this with, is like, Esther's last food. night with the podcast, and I just wanted to say thank you for being the best host ever. Um, oh. We really appreciate your humour, your personality, your weirdness. How am I going to find someone to match? Well, we've got a bid going at the moment. The highest bidder gets to replace me, so good luck. <laughs> Have fun. I love you guys. Thank you, everyone, for donating for these gorgeous little kitty cats that have been playing on the the screen all night. Um, you've saved some cats' lives tonight, so you she have. will be very happy. 
And we'll pop up online tomorrow how much we've raised once it's actually been calculated. But yeah, thank you everyone. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Thanks for coming. Thanks Chris, our producer. Thanks to Chris, Thanks our producer. Thanks Gemma, the incredible legend who wrote everything. <laughs> Clearly. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. And thanks and RPP for being our recording. Yeah, our amazing for recording us. host. Uh, yeah, so with that, don't forget our favourite hashtag, socially awkward. Be creepy, but don't be a creep. Woo! <laughs>